0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor. From the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, one expert came to the fore as a trusted voice, not just in his home country of the United States, but around the globe. Dr Anthony S Fauci, the director of the US National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. But while Dr Fauci might not have been a household name before the last year and a half, his career as an infectious disease specialist has spanned four decades. He's advised seven presidents, and he was instrumental in the US response to the AIDS epidemic. I spoke to Dr Fauci earlier this year as part of an event honouring the late Australian AIDS researcher David Cooper of the University of New South Wales Kirby Institute. But
1: to be with you. Thank you for having me.
0: Australia often likes to compare itself with America, but our COVID experience has been very different. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, I think
1: it's important that what the Australians did is that they had, I believe, at least looking at it from a distance and in discussing with my Australians friends and colleagues, that you had the capability and the uniformity of your citizens that when you shut down, you really shut down very effectively And then when you had a situation where you opened up again, uh, you responded quickly and efficiently. And I'm sure not everybody in Australia was excited about having to shut things down. But you did it in a way which was really quite uniform, but importantly, effective. If you look at the United States, you know, we have 50 separate states and territories in addition to the 50 states. And part of our government structure is that the states have a degree of independence to do what it is that they wanna do. And we had an inconsistent response, which allowed us, unfortunately for us, to really do worse than essentially any other country, which is really extremely unfortunate.
0: It's sort of a cultural thing though, isn't it? Like Australia has a quarantine culture with the biosecurity and America is a very, very proud of its independence and the independence of its citizens. How do you change something like that at a country level?
1: it's very difficult to do. You know, what, what we had, uh, again, I, I'm, a, I'm a very loyal American, <laughs> but I, I'm a realist too. And I see what is going on in our country. It is unfortunate that we are living right now in our country in a time of profound divisiveness. Now, in some respects, that happens in different countries. But when it spills over in the middle of the worst, most historic pandemic of a respiratory disease that we've had in over 100 years, if there's anything you want is you want people to be pulling together in uniform.
0: And that needs to be led from the top. And it's no secret that you and President Trump had, there were difficulties in having a consistent, cohesive approach there. Has that shifted now that Biden's taken office?
1: You know, it certainly has from the top. There's no doubt about it, that President Biden wants science to rule. He said that behind the scenes to us on his medical team, and he has said it publicly. That has worked extremely well. However, we still have a degree of divisiveness in the country. And we still have situations where governors, because of their independence, are essentially defying some of the recommendations and the guidelines of public health, which is one of the reasons, together with the variants, why I believe, despite our great success with vaccines, we're, of course, we're sort of in a race between the potential for a real surging of cases and the fact that we're putting vaccines into people's arms extremely efficiently.
0: That's been a constant challenge for you throughout your career though. You've advised seven presidents over decades and there's sort of two jobs that you're doing, isn't there? You're sort of managing up to the president, but you're also, you're you're managing communication to an entire nation. How do you balance that managing up and also that public health messaging? Well,
1: most of the time it is, I wouldn't say easy, it's never easy, but with some challenges it works well. One of the difficulties that we had over the previous months, not recently, but, you know, last year in the middle of the height of what was going on is that I had to, and it was very painful to do, but I had to do it, come out and essentially contradict what the president was saying, which is a very difficult thing to do. And it led to some obviously strain and stress uh, between us.
0: You mentioned before the vaccine rollout and uh, UNSW alumnus Carla Burnett said the US struggled at the start of its vaccine rollout, uh, but has seemed to have picked up the slack. And Australia is also struggling with its vaccine rollout at the moment and wondering what advice the US can give to Australia in this regard.
1: To the extent that it's possible, what President Biden did is that he made it the very, very top priority. He put in a substantial amount of resources. He made equity a very important part of this. And what he's done, for example, is open up community vaccine centers, get vaccines to the pharmacies, develop mobile units to go out to get the people who are in poorly accessible areas, and got vaccinators. He got as many of them out into the field as he possibly could. Those are retired physicians, military personnel, nurses, medical students, as many people as you possibly can to get out there and administer it. So it was really making it the highest priority to get vaccine into people's arms and it works.
0: So you mentioned before about vaccination being something everyone's to do, that idea of health equity. And Sophia Henning, who's a UNSW student, was asking about whether you think that the COVID-19 health crisis in the USA has increased American public support for universal health care or if it's further entrenched the current model.
1: Well, as you know, the Affordable Care Act was one that attempted to get to that point that you're referring It needs to be improved and will be improved. As you know, uh, there was attempts to essentially destroy that, and that has been unsuccessful because there's been no alternative for it. But we really feel strongly that if we get the Affordable Care Act with some improvements in it, that we would have what would be the equivalent to universal health coverage.
0: So epidemiologists and virologists and infectious disease experts have been predicting a global pandemic for years and it was called disease X and it was inevitable, but it happened. Uh, When was the moment that you realised that COVID-19 was going to be a big deal?
1: Well, it was a gradual issue. And one of the things that prevented us from knowing right off that it was going to be a big deal was the early lack of transparency on the part of China, which is really unfortunate not all Chinese, but the Chinese officials. You might recall that the first inkling of something going wrong was a new type of pneumonia was coming out of Wuhan. And it was felt that, well, it was similar to SARS, the original SARS, where it jumped species from an animal somewhere in the environment of the wet market in Wuhan. The standard line then was, well, It doesn't really spread very efficiently from human to human. It's merely just jumping from an animal to a human. And then after a little bit, it was, well, it goes from human to human. And then after another little bit, well, it goes really efficiently from human to human. And then finally, and by the way, it's a very unusual virus because it spreads from people who aren't even symptomatic. So we knew there was a problem when China was doing all the things they were doing, building like field hospitals, you know, practically overnight that they wouldn't be doing that unless there was a situation that they felt was really dire. When we got hit in New York City uh, and it was very clear that we were having rapid spread of this virus with a very dire consequence among certain subgroups such as the elderly and those with underlying conditions, You know, it became very clear after that second month or so that this was not going to go away. This was really a serious historic problem.
0: Yeah, I suppose China perhaps wasn't transparent at the beginning, but they did mobilise really quickly, which the rest of the world has also had to learn to do. And despite that early hesitancy to be transparent, the pandemic has really been characterised by international collaboration.
1: Well, there's no doubt. I mean, uh, a global pandemic requires a global response. And a global response includes transparency and includes sharing of information, includes international clinical trials, which is, you know, the reason why I was so pleased when on the first day of President Biden's presidency, he asked me to represent him at the executive board of the WHO and to announce to the world that we were re-entering the World Health Organization and we were going to become an active part of COVAX. So that I think is something that took a while but finally we're back where we should be. The United States as an important part of a global effort.
0: Obviously the United States has a lot of work to do to protect its own citizens, but what responsibility do you think that wealthy nations like the US and Australia have to the developing world?
1: You know, I think we do. I mean, it was my strong feeling of that responsibility which prompted me to play a major role in developing the PEPFAR program. The President's Emergency Plans for AIDS Relief, which, as you probably know, has saved now up to 14 million lives. I believe that the developed world has a responsibility to assist the developing world in things that are not readily available to them. And that's the reason why we started COVAX. We didn't start COVAX, we joined COVAX. Namely, we have a situation where we pledged or given $4 billion. We will clearly, when we get our people vaccinated, be very seriously considerate, and I'm saying not only consider, but we will do, share some of the excess vaccines that we have. And I think we also would like to perhaps be part of a movement to allow some of the developing countries to produce vaccine on their own, to give them the capability of being able to produce it rather than relying on outsiders to give it to them.
0: Because it's not just about, it is philanthropical to go and help developing nations, but it also helps all of us. We're all humans with the same biology and variants that emerge in other nations still threaten the developed world as well.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And I think that's the critical issue that I have, you know, personally as a public health person, have felt so strongly about that, particularly when you have a disease, an infection that spreads so easily and so efficiently as this virus does, that even if you control it well in your own country, the way Australia's done, the way we hope to do, the way many of the European countries, even though they're going through a terrible time with surges now, in several of the countries of the European Union, when you ultimately get it controlled, if you want to maintain the control, you want to have control throughout the entire world. Because as long as there's the dynamic of virus replication somewhere, there will always be the threat of the emergence of variants which could then come back. And even though most of the rest of the world is vaccinated, it can threaten the world that has felt that they've controlled the virus when they're still quite vulnerable.
0: What is our way out globally then? Because last year it was all like, we've just got to get through 2020 and now we're in 2021 and it still hasn't quit. Where to from here?
1: Yeah, I, I believe vaccination is the answer. I mean, variants are a problem, no doubt, but we are fortunate Given the investments that were made in biomedical research over so many years, due to the extraordinary advances in vaccine platform technology and structure-based design of immunogens that are optimal immunogens, that we now have several vaccines that are highly efficacious and when put into the field that efficacious becomes quite effective and we're seeing that in my country, in which when we vaccinate people, we see that it really does work out there in the field. The issue is we've got to get the overwhelming majority of the population vaccinated, which brings us you know, to another one of the potential stumbling blocks that we have in the United States is what we call vaccine hesitancy. Where people don't want to get vaccinated for reasons that don't seem to have anything to do with public health. It's unjustified skepticism. It's a political ideology where you look, I mean, how could it be that a certain proportion of people of a particular persuasion don't want to get vaccinated? That just doesn't make any sense. What does vaccine, which is directly related to public health and over? decades, if not centuries, has proven to be the most extraordinary preventive modality that you have for infectious diseases. How does the acceptance of that or not become a political issue? But unfortunately, in many respects, it has.
0: This is the David Cooper Memorial Lecture, David Cooper pioneered AIDS research in Australia. And one of the things that really worked for his work here in Australia, was partnering with the LGBTQ community. And I know that that's something that you came around to as well in your work. Does a similar approach need to be taken for COVID-19, where there's some more kind of community-level public health messaging happening for these people who are really resistant?
1: You know, I, I wish that were the case. Uh, I really do. When I dealt, and that has been a very important part, I believe, of what I did and what David did in Australia. And, and, you know, David and I were very good friends for many, many years, way before HIV and AIDS came along, actually, uh, when he was a fellow with Ron Penny. So we had the same attitude that you needed to reach out because the community, when they were essentially pushing back against the scientific establishment and against the regulatory establishment because they felt justifiably and correctly that we were not giving them a voice in what was directly affecting them in the design of clinical trials, in the loosening of the regulatory issues that we were taking years and years to make decisions about drugs when they, at that time, had a lifespan measured in a year or less. So although they were being iconoclastic, they were being disruptive, it wasn't a political difference. It was a difference in saying, listen to us because we feel we should have a voice in what gets done. And they were absolutely correct. So when I extended myself to them and said, let me listen to what you have to say, what they had to say made absolute sense. And I said to myself, you know, if I were in their shoes, I would be doing exactly what they're doing. That is an entirely different situation from someone that tells you that this is all a hoax and it's fake news and it doesn't exist. There's a big difference there. So although I would love and and do extend myself with a substantial investment of time to get people to get vaccinated, the hardcore ones that don't want to for political reasons, I don't think I could change their mind. If someone has a hesitancy because they have a doubt about was it done too quickly or we have a very important situation in our in our country with our minorities, our African-Americans and Hispanics, our brown and black people, because they justifiably are somewhat skeptical about anything the government does because of the way they have been treated. So the way we get to them is we totally respect their skepticism and say, let's together try to work our way through this, because the reason for your skepticism, even though we have many, many guardrails in place now to prevent those injustices from coming now, the fact is the history of the injustices to you are real. So we respect it. Once you get past that, then you could say, "Lo, it wasn't done too quickly. It was only a reflection of spectacular advances in science. It wasn't done carelessly. When they see the data, they say, you know, I'm convinced, I think I'll do it. But the hardcore people who do it, for, who are resistant for other reasons, it's gonna be very tough to turn them around.
0: So we mentioned before that you're early in your career was the AIDS epidemic. What did you learn during that time that has sort of informed the rest of your career up until now?
1: Well, there are several things about it. I mean, scientifically what I learned and I've been dealing with this now, HIV AIDS is still very much on the radar screen. I've been doing it for 40 years now, but it is impressed upon me that new infections have always emerged. They are emerging now and they will continue to emerge. So the lesson learned is that to the extent possible, prepare yourself as best as you possibly can. And there are a couple of ways to prepare. You can prepare by building a good public health global infrastructure, the Global Health Security Network, for example, by having the kind of transparencies that we mentioned a little bit ago when we were talking about China, the idea that we make investments in public health infrastructure, which interestingly in the United States, we've let be a victim of attrition, the local public health. The other thing that I feel as a scientist is as important of all of that is the investment in fundamental basic and applied science, which will allow you to respond quickly when you do get an emerging infection. And by quickly, I mean doing things like building on prototype pathogen experience, the spike protein in the right conformation to induce the best immune response. That was an interdisciplinary effort of structural biologists, X-ray crystallographers, cryo-EM experts, that we able to study the conformation of molecules that you can then, by mutating them, keep them in a stable form to be used as an immunogen. It was years of work developing new platform technologies like the mRNA. It's that kind of investment in research that generically forwards and advances all of the things that you can do so that when you get confronted with an outbreak, that that outbreak doesn't turn into a global pandemic.
0: Yeah, I think the public and politicians as well often want scientists to just be able to pull a rabbit out of a hat, but you need to be laying that groundwork in the good times so that when these pathogens emerge, you're ready. So the Kirby Institute's involved in some major NIH-sponsored COVID and HIV trials, and we've called... There's been a lot of talk about the current global research effort as being unprecedented, but actually a lot of the foundations for this were laid in the AIDS epidemic. What sort of international collaborations that began with HIV have helped the COVID research effort?
1: Well, there's one that is really important, and that is back in the mid to late 1980s, I began in my institute to build a clinical trials network that was global. And what we did is that we made major investments into clinical trial sites to train and fund investigators throughout the world. So now, when you have the need to do international clinical trials, you can actually call upon the experienced investigators who for decades, both they and their trainees and their mentors had successfully done clinical trials with HIV. It was that investment and that experience that was gained very successfully with HIV-AIDS that allowed us to spring out of the box quickly and very effectively in clinical trials with COVID-19.
0: Jane Costello, who's a partner of the University of New South Wales, she's the CEO of Positive Life New South Wales, which represents people who are HIV positive. She was asking about your reflections on the role that stigma has played in both the AIDS epidemic and the COVID epidemic.
1: Well, stigma has clearly played almost an acute negative impact on HIV. The stigma associated with a disenfranchised group, namely gay men back then, who were not too long before 1981, finally were able to express their own sexual identity freedom with the famous Stonewall Riot in the bar in Greenwich Village, which allowed them to finally be out there with their own identity. But the stigma against gay men then and against commercial sex workers, and against injection drug users, in a disease that was mysterious, was really, it's much more improved now, much better. But it was really a problem back then. Uh, And in some respects, still lingers. Stigma in some other countries, still to this day, 40 years later, is a problem. With regard to COVID-19, I have found that at least in my own country, it has shed a very bright light the disease has on the health disparities in my country. We know that African-Americans and Hispanics have a higher incidence of infection because of the nature of the jobs they have. They're essential workers in society more often than not. But also importantly, due to the conditions That they have been under the social determinants of health as we call it they have a higher incidence and prevalence of the underlying medical comorbidities that when they are present they give you a greater chance of getting a serious outcome with hospitalization and death
0: these health disparities have been known about for years though what is it about COVID-19 that's put them into such stark relief
1: Well, the consequences of a person who is an African-American or Hispanic, who the incidence of diabetes, hypertension, obesity, chronic lung disease, heart disease is much higher in that population. You don't notice it even though you should when it's just there a long period of time. Then when you get a disease, like COVID that specifically kills people with that type of underlying condition, then all of a sudden a bright spotlight goes right on that and says, oh my goodness, we really need to do something about this. I hope if anything comes out of this terrible ordeal that we're going through, that it is a realization that we've got to address these health disparities.
0: On that, and probably our last question, a question sent in from Pejman Kesvadust, who says there's a whole new generation of doctors who are training as medical students right now. What do you hope they've learnt from this pandemic that they can take into their practice?
1: Yeah, I think what they can take into their practice on the outside is that bad things can happen and that we really do need to be prepared at every level not only just in a public health level, but in a local level of taking care of patients. The other thing I think that we've learned is how extraordinarily courageous our healthcare providers have been. They should be very proud of themselves. If there ever is a hero and a heroine in this is our doctors, our nurses and our other healthcare providers, they've really risen to the occasion. And I think they've it to themselves that they can do that. So I think when all this is over, they will feel that they've accomplished something that's most extraordinary and historic.
0: And what do you hope the general public takes away from it?
1: Well, I think it's what you said. It, it is an awareness that this can happen. And I think the resources that we as a global community needs to put into this, I mean, I don't think you could have any more cogent reason to do that than to just look at what we've been through as a global community.
0: Absolutely. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your insights.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Dr. Anthony Fauci is Director of the US National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, speaking there as part of an event for the UNSW Kirby Institute. This has been The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor. See you again next week.